In our podcast miniseries, Made by Microbes, we explore new ways of microbial production. The range of microbial products is widening, with advances in life sciences that enable microbes to produce substances that are naturally produced by animals or plants. We invite people whose daily work is deeply rooted in microbial research to share their insights and discuss the expected impact of biotechnology on our everyday life. Welcome to our episode to its a new partnership with nature on the potential of synthetic biology for providing solutions to environmental challenges such as pollution and climate change. This podcast episode is a shortened version of a panel conversation on metabolic engineering between Ricard Soule, Rachel Armstrong, Victor De Lorenzo, and moderated by Michele Catanzaro. The event took place at the Botanical Garden in Madrid on May 13, 2022, and the full-length conversation can be visited on the Synbio for Fluff website or on YouTube. I'm Waltraud Hoeneder from Liquifer Vienna. Okay, good afternoon. Welcome to the Conversations on Metabolic Engineering. Uh, the title of this conversation is Towards a New Partnership with Nature, Synthetic Biology for a Broken Planet. My name is Michele Catanzaro. I'm a physicist and a science journalist. And I must say, when, when I was preparing this conversation and having a preparatory chat with the speakers, I heard really mind-boggling stories, you know, ranging from plastic-eating bacteria in the sea or to microbes that produce electricity out of your pee to things like, for example, um, bacteria that retain water in, uh, in the desert, which may have a very interesting impact in our current situation. And in fact, uh, one of the things we will discuss, I think this will be a quite compelling discuss discussion, is whether all this potential can be harnessed somehow to uh, tackle some of the major environmental challenges that we are facing, from climate change to desertification to plastic pollution, etc. But we will also uh, tackle the, the challenges. So, you know, ethical challenges, economic ones, uh, technological ones, in really harnessing this potential in this uh, new relation with, uh, with uh, mm, the world of microbes and with nature in general. So first of all, let's start with Victor De Lorenzo. He is the head of the Laboratory of Environmental Molecular Biology at the National Center for Biotechnology. And one of the topics he has worked is precisely uh, mm, industrial waste, the use of microbes for this per specific purpose. And he's uh, thinking hard recently at, let's say, scaling up this solution to global environmental pro problems. Uh, he has plenty of awards, so I will not uh, <laughs> mention all of them, uh, but they are all very important. And I must say that I think our first interaction was when he co-chaired the President Science and Technology Council of the European Commission during Durao Barroso administration. So a very interesting position in which he sort of had to advise policymakers, which uh, makes his perspective and his experience especially relevant. So I would like to start, Victor, by asking you precisely about this. Could you mention a few of the big challenges we are facing uh, and how could microbes play a role in addressing them? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, first of all, uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure um, starting this conversation with you today. And uh, to answer your questions, uh, uh, that I think is, is are very relevant, let me give you a little historical perspective, okay? So I think that the idea 
that one can use microbes, uh, take them to the laboratory, use the best genetic technology to produce biocatalysts able to degrade uh, important pollutants, started, I would say, in the early 80s. And this interest in this type of developments started also at the time of what you may call the onset of the green awareness in Europe. And you may remember, maybe you are too young, some of you, uh, but that by that time um, uh, there was um, the onset and, the, uh, the, and the, uh, the creation of the Green Party in Germany. And that uh, had a tremendous uh, impact in the whole uh, vision of many societies, in particular Western societies, uh, to bring environmental issues to the political agenda. This is something that had not really happened before. We have to say that two major things that happened also during this period of time were, on the one hand, the uh, so-called Exxon Valdez disaster. It was a petroleum tank that collapsed in front of the coasts of Alaska. And by the same uh, time, uh, there was this also big disaster in Bhopal in India, where a chemical factory had a big spill of toxic um, molecules, and then it was a complete disaster. So these type of uh, things really start, um, uh, created a kind of a momentum. So uh, for many years, the emphasis was to go to one place, um, identify one pollutant, and identify one bacterium that was able to degrade the pollutant, take the bacterium to the laboratory, and try to you know do something with it to improve the process. That lasted, I would say, for about 10 years. But then at the end of the 80s, early 90s and mid 90s, things started to go a bit wrong. Number one, uh, the expectations that were created by the end of the 80s were not really fulfilled. Um, uh, so uh, the public and the funders started to be a, a bit skeptical about whether, in fact, we could use genetic engineering to make a difference in terms of environmental remediation. But let's face it, there was also the time that public became very sensitive to the use of recombinant DNA technologies. So I would say that by mid of the 90s, the whole field of um, genetically improving bioremediation, environmental bioremediation, came to a kind of standstill. However, the community that was formerly interested in biodegradation moved massively into this other field of metabolic engineering for the sake of creating industrially interesting and valuable products. Let's focus on using genes that come from the environment, bacteria that come from the environment, to do, uh, to, to produce valuable compounds. And still to this, uh, to this day, this is a very, very important branch of the whole biotechnological field. However, time passed, and then all of a sudden, we were faced with all this change of a scenario when we faced the data about climate change. And that happened, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, were massive data on uh, greenhouses, um, greenhouse, uh, greenhouse gases started to appear, effect on, on um, raising temperatures, deterioration of ecosystems. I mean, we started to really face a new situation. And uh, this phenomenal challenge that we have about climate change asked us to really consider developing the technologies, developing the social mood to, um, to go ahead and plan massive interventions in such a way that we can remedy it or compensate minimally the type of damage that we have made to our planets. Obviously, this has many different um, um, aspects that we probably uh, discuss, but we are claiming here, and at least uh, that's part of my kind of um, agenda in the last few years, that we should think on large scale, even global scale, planetary scale bioremediation. And um, uh, the reason why we are not there, in my opinion, is because not enough research has been done in these particular areas. And for this large-scale bioremediation, we need to tackle various challenges. And one big challenge is, of course, to develop the biological agents, the biological pathways, the biological, say, activities that are necessary to 
um, uh, convert uh, this, um, this phenomenal problem to a challenge that can be tackled uh, with modern science. I think that this can be one of the tools that we can put on top of the table to heal uh, the damage that you have made to the planet and perhaps to rethink our interactions with nature, not in terms of domination, but in terms of partnership. Great. Victor, thanks a lot. Uh, I must say, um, as a reporter in science, you, you, I really appreciate your historical background because sometimes in science communication, things seem to appear without you know, out of the blue, without antecedents, and, and, and it's very interesting to see how we have arrived up to here, and thanks also for reminding us that, uh, yeah, I mean, that uh, proactive action is needed to tackle issues like, for example, climate change. Uh, the, the second speaker is Rachel Armstrong, a professor of regenerative, regenerative architecture at, Q, at, at sorry, QU Leuven in Belgium. Uh, she has a degree, uh, a medical degree from the University of Oxford and a PhD in architecture. So very interesting um, uh, path in uh, science. Um, uh, she has worked in this concept. She's in fact the, the, the leader of the concept of living architecture, uh, an idea, uh, a practice of architecture that is uh, ecological, technological, and life-centered. And uh, she has written several books. The, the last one is called uh, Safe as Houses, the More Than Human Home. Uh, so, Rachel, uh, you advocate for a sort of different uh, coexistence, let's say, between us and the microbes uh, in the built environment, in our houses, in fact. I was wondering whether you could give us some examples of how this coexistence is actually being deployed in the real world. Well, thank you. Thank you for your introduction. Um, just, to, just to follow up from Professor De Lorenzo's um, observation that bioremediation is an absolute emergency, equally pressing is actually removing the causes of anthropogenic change. And one of the biggest causes of anthropogenic change is the built environment, which currently contributes 40% of the world's uh, carbon footprint. It's about 1% more than transport. So that's, that's pretty significant. And so uh, one of the things that a whole bunch of um, bio-artists and bio-designers have been looking at is how we might change the infrastructure and actually change that to um, a life-promoting um, system. And of course, at the foundations of the world's biosphere are the microbes. But I firstly want to introduce a number of different technologies that exist today um, that are, I would say, in prototype or kind of pilot phase of development or the, uh, the very first example of their kind. So first of all, in Hamburg, um, there's the BIQ building, the intelligent building, was built by Arup and collaborators, um, that has panels on the outside of the building, outside of the building envelope, that contain algae, little green cows that eat sunlight and carbon dioxide and turn it into biomass. And what these algae are doing is this extra cladding around the building is reducing uh, the thermosolar effect, the heating of buildings passively by sunlight in the summer. And so it's reducing the amount of power that we use in the building to cool it. Um, and so this was a pioneering building um, that was the first to really incorporate microbes um, in its infrastructure. 
Other ones that are also uh, quite infrastructural would be things like um, the P-Power project, which has been running for the last five years and longer than that. Uh, it's been running as P-Power for five years. And it has a pilot that has been um, uh, um, uh, present and kind of very much enjoyed in the last five years in Glastonbury. And so the P-Power essentially is microbial fuel cells, microbial fuel cell arrays that take the p of uh, festival goers. We could probably do quite a lot with that. Um, uh, but it's turned into bioelectricity that's used to power um, mobile phones. Uh, people can play computer games. And some of that energy will go to power the screens in this pop-up festival. They've been looking at refugee camps uh, for displaced people and using the microbial fuel cell toilet. They're able to generate lighting to keep women safe at night around toilets. Uh, they clean water, so provide um, sanitation and provide bioelectricity. So the idea then is that you could get this a kind of resource circularity, taking human waste um, and cleaning the water through a series of um, bioprocessors. And that is really important because the microbial fuel cell system could comfortably um, uh, power around about a 12 volt battery supply, whereas our domestic supplies are eating up 230 volts in Europe. Um, I find that really interesting because we could make a huge difference um, to our um, uh, carbon footprint simply by finding ways to develop a 12 volt lifestyle. So, so kind of thinking strategically into what a microbially powered um, infrastructure for homes and cities could be really raises uh, a lot of different kinds of um, opportunities. And one of the projects that um, I coordinated and that Barbara and Voltret and Juan uh, were all um, uh, fantastic uh, collaborators in was a project called the Living Architecture um, um, Sis, uh, Living Architecture Project, and it was a bioprojection a system that put different kinds of microbial metabolisms together that didn't normally sit together in nature. So we could put anaerobic metabolisms next to photosynthetic uh, metabolisms. And the CSIC made a, an absolutely mind-blowing, staggeringly interesting, awesome um, synthetic biology uh, bioprocessor. And I thought this was just amazing because now we could bribe microbes into doing stuff that we wanted them to do. Microbes generate electricity that is also data. It can be used for power, low power to drive low power electronic systems, but it also is important for uh, chemical change. The transfer of electrons from one atom or molecule to another can actually bring about physical change. Um, and so using microbial electricity, a bioelectricity, gives us a qualitatively new experience of electricity in a home. There's a long history of that. Um, um, but it also gives us this possibility of an iPad interface where through animations uh, we know how our microbes are feeling. And so we can change the inputs uh, into our microbial fuel cells or our synthetic uh, uh, consortia. Um, and we can really start to negotiate a, a, a kind of mi microbial economic transaction with them. Great, thanks a lot. It is really fascinating to, th to see that these things are happening, that the potential is not only, you know, something in the future, but it's something that one can see in real-world prototypes. 
And okay, so let me uh, let me introduce you our third speaker, Ricard Soule. He's a physicist and a biologist, uh, and uh, he's an ICREA research professor at Pompeu Fabra University in Barcelona, where he leads the complex system labs. Uh, he has focused much of his recent research in evolution in the evolutionary origins of complexity, and he is the author of the complex of the concept of liquid brains, which is a uh, uh, mm, framework to develop a theory of cognitive networks. Um, uh, another concept that he's working on uh, a lot recently and that I think will be very relevant in this context is the, the idea of biosphere terraformation, that is engineering ecosystem to restore degraded habitats or avoid tipping points. Uh, so, Ricard, um, I would like to start precisely from this uh, last point. Uh, you, when we had our conversation, you mentioned that you are planning to kick off a project uh, to check whether microbes, modified microbes, could trigger a biosphere in uh, an especially challenging context, which is arid ecosystems. So, and even one could imagine in something even more challenging, which is the outer space, another planet. So I was wondering whether you could tell us something about this project. When Victor was, was talking, uh, it came to my mind, I wanted to kind of, uh, of kind of also make a historical picture of this. I remember 30 years ago, something like that, uh, somebody came to the Santa Fe Institute, where I also worked part of the year, and he was making a kind of a, uh, forecast of climate change in the future, etc., etc., and you know when you live enough to see what, what things happen. Uh, I remember well when he made these predictions that seemed kind of very specific, like uh, huge floods in Central Europe, uh, huge uh, mega fires in Australia and North America, and so on and so forth. Um, plus all the all the story of what's going to happen with when we get run off of, of fools. And, and we have a big oil, and you know, just saying that it's not that like scientists have not been able to predict what's going to happen. And actually, uh, sadly, the, what we see nowadays is that the things that were not well predicted is that because they are worse than we thought. And uh, I just don't want to be so uh, so uh, pessimistic, but it's good to have an idea of why we're talking about uh, climatic emergency from different different sources of inspiration. I've been working on theoretical ecology for many years. And at some point, we started to work in synthetic biology. We have our own wet lab. And we realized all the problems that real experiments imply. And um, from a number of influences came the idea of why not to consider the idea of terraforming our planet and our ecosystems. And I make the, try to make the point of why is this something that is sensible and why is reasonable, right? Um, and I want to say that one of the inspirations I had was a, a, a short uh, article by, by Rachel that was she published in Nature called, uh, I think it was Living Quarters, where, where she made this very nice, uh, you could say speculation, but I think it was quite reasonable, that what about um, uh, attacking the problem of pollution in a place like uh, the Venice Laguna, like building an artificial reef and colonizing the, the reef with you know, microorganisms that you might have actually designed. So that's what, that's what it makes sense. And the first thing that comes to your mind, of course, is uh, the Jurassic Park picture, mm -hmm. right? So you manipulate something, uh, you bring it into in nature, and so what's going to happen? What's the unintended consequences, right? Well, 
This is a, a completely wrong picture for many reasons. We have been working on that actively in the last six years, um, doing um, a lot of mathematical and computational modeling, which is kind of the basis you do in ecology when you want to try to understand a system. We believe in a linear world where things are happening, happening continuously, continuously. We can always think that, well, someday we'll, when things go really wrong, we'll go back, right? And that, that doesn't work. Complex systems do not work like that way, right? They are tipping points. They are points of no return. That happened in the past, and we see them happening now. The point here is, um, you know, that's our proposal. Uh, why about taking something that is already there? That's an essential part of the story. Something that is already in the community that has co-evolved with the, the, the biodiversity that you have there. You take it, right? Our conjecture is a cyanobacteria. You make a little modification, like uh, it will secrete a molecule that retains a little more moisture or improves the quality of the soil. And that has two implications. One is that, uh, that's our prediction that you have to test, that biodiversity is kept, so this microorganisms will not provide anything into the system. And that a little difference like this in, in real systems that are highly nonlinear can make the, the tipping point be pushed away. Right? You can even maybe transform the nature of, of the transition. Right? And if we need something now, it's, it's time. That's pretty much fundamental. And that will have great, great implications. Um, um, our ecosystems, we have a lot of indirect evidence that this kind of strategy could work. Great. Thanks a lot, Ricard, for bringing a lot of new ones to, to this concept. I mean, I think it's really interesting, this macro and micro approach, you know, from the gene to the whole structure of the ecosystem. And also, um, I think it's fascinating this idea of you know taking something that it is is already there and you know uh, using the potential of the of uh, of something that is already integrated in the ecological network now we have talked about you know really futuristic applications you know from front line but i mean we have lived together with microbes we live together with microbes you know since forever okay and and we have also used them a lot in traditional ways. So I would like to ask you to whoever in the table wants to comment about this fact, about this idea that you know microbes, bacteria, we have associate associate them with something that is bad, that it's dirty, that we need to fight. But then instead there are plenty of situations in which they are not bad at all, both in nature, uh, in our body and in technology. In very you know technologies that we deal with every day. We basically are in a bacterial planet or a microbial planet. Um, in that respect, the history of Earth has shown that bacteria have been the prime agents for major climatic changes. Not only one, but various times. Um, uh, episodes that will have a geological record of big climate changes in, in planet Earth have been, for the most part, triggered by bacteria or by microbes in general. And that means that uh, bacteria and microbes in general are our main, if not our only allies, to make a difference in terms of climatic um, management. And this is something that um, is good news, in my opinion, mm -hmm. because we have this growing, say, technology that allows us to manipulate, or, well, manipulate sounds like negative, 
allow us to program or to reprogram or to start a kind of conversation with the microbiome to change its behavior. And if we are able to really um, convince the microbiome to um, deal with our emissions differently, probably that will have tremendous consequences for the whole uh, health of our planet. And um, I insist that you know perhaps um, with this idea of a new partnership, a new covenant with um, the environment, we should bring in uh, um, a micro the microbial world as our main, say, um, um, say uh, partner in this yeah. in this conversation. In the late 19th century, there were there were two um, scientific realms that were being discovered. One was the relationship between microbes and uh, clinical health. Uh, or the health of the human body, and the other one was environmental. But because one third of all um, adults were dying from infectious disease, from plague to cholera, um, that the relationship between micro, the, the kind of pathog pathogens, um, took the spotlight. And so, um, politically and you know, kind of uh, society mobilised against microbes and went to war with them, uh, which is you know why we then sought out things like um, antibiotics. So it is it is our demonisation of the less than one percent of all microbes that do have pathogenicity um, uh, that has led to this great uh, uh, kind of twisted view of um, you know what a microbe is and what it does. Yeah, I, I will add. I will add that one of the uh, great things of the understanding the our our own microbiome, and particularly the gut microbiome, has brought a lot of interesting insight for the terraformation project. Because uh, you, of course, can, could bring the the question of if you if you mess with the biosphere or ecosystems, we have only one biosphere. And the good news is that now it's a, a huge amount of work that's been done in biomedical research on actually uh, bringing new microorganisms into the gut to actually correct diseases and you can actually thanks to omic techniques you can actually follow up what's the impact of that and that's giving us a lot of a lot of real in insight because the microbiome is nothing but an ecosystem a really complex one with a lot of similarities with a real ecosystem like the rainforest and uh, so that's our parallel experiments mm -hmm. Yeah, and also let me remind you that somebody was having a microbial produced product, a beer <laughs> here, and also cheese and wine and all these sort of things, or or even compost, waste processing, etc. That that is, there are plenty of ways in which microbes are already being used. In fact, in a very mainstream way, and um, I mean, when we talk about um, about uh, metabolic engineering, synth synthetic uh, biology. Um, one other, I think, background point that one should bear in mind is that microbes in nature are quite promiscuous in terms of their genes, okay? So they have, maybe, uh, could anybody want to comment on this part, on, on the fact that they really interchange genes quite cost normally, let's say, uh, independently of the fact that we touch them or not? Well, that's, that's one of the important points we used to make when discuss this, this question of the unintended consequences, because if you're talking about modifying a single gene uh, from a given microorganism, it might sound like a lot already, but in fact, as you are saying, this is horizontal gene transfer. There's a constant uh, messing of genes around, and I mean, and it's nothing like Frankenstein coming out from from mm -hmm. anywhere. It's it's really part of the way of the resilience of nature uh, with the mixing of the, the genetic and the cellular levels, and adaptation coming out from that. So, to be clear, it, it, bacteria do not only inherit, let's say, their genes, but they interchange genes uh, horizontally throughout their life, let's say. Okay? Uh, I would say that horizontal gene transfer is like kind of internet 
of microbial communities, the way that they transfer information here and there. And as a matter of fact, in my laboratory and other laboratories, um, we think this as a, a phenomenon that could be leveraged to really uh, spread uh, information, beneficial information from an environmental point of view through a wider uh, bacterial or microbial community. Rather than bringing a new member, engineer or not, into the, into the action theater, uh, you may want perhaps to spread uh, in the existing community a new information, a new activity. And in my opinion, this can be uh, one, uh, say, big breakthrough in terms of um, um, biotechnological and bioremediation technologies. Not so much to enter or to release or to kind of spread out specific strains, but to spread the information. And this is something that we are actively working on. I was just going to make a non-scientific uh, perspective, which is like um, uh, both Ricard and uh, uh, Professor De Lorenzo have noted that actually the majority of creatures on this planet are not humans. And so it's really twisted that we get this Noah's Ark-like you know, notion of vertical descent as being the proper way of conducting ourselves and call microbes promiscuous. I think really the question is, why don't we do that? You know, maybe we would be with our environments in much better ways if we adopted some of these kinds of more experimental uh, ways of living. I mean, our trade-off is that we develop form and we like that. Um, uh, but I, I just think that we sometimes need to invert these questions. Yeah, so now that we have sort of set the stage, I would like to ask a basic question. I mean, maybe most of people here already know it, but could you briefly, Victor, explain what is metabolic engineering, what is synthetic biology. So one of the challenges in biology is that unlike chemistry and unlike physics, in biology we are we resort to metaphors all the time. Okay, So metabolic engineering is a kind of metaphor uh, in the sense that what we try or the community uh, involved in this endeavor tries is to rationally design uh, metabolic properties in bacteria or other biological systems by rational combination of um, specific genes that encode specific activities together with control elements. And we can use the, the, the bits and parts that nature um, gives to us, but put them differently to create a new thing. It's like if you have um, a mechano, you know, or, or, a, or, or, a, or, a, or a Lego, you know, and you have the bricks here and there, and with the same bricks that are given by default from nature, then you can reconstruct them following a rational, say, blueprint. And at the end, what we expect, and in many cases it has been very successful, is to have biological materials, in many cases microorganisms, able to do things that nature is unable to do. It's what we call new to nature properties. And uh, well, I think that in, in, in a couple of words, this is what metabolic engineering is about. Thanks. Um, uh, I wanted to ask uh, Rachel, um, I mean, you, you, are, you are an expert in design and design thinking. I was wondering how the, I, this idea of interacting more with microbes mm -hmm. changes the way we design things. I mean, how, how it changes, the, let's say, the standard flow of, uh, of thinking. Yeah, well, I, th I think once you have a substrate for design that's living, it has an agency. It, it wants to do stuff by, all by itself without you. Um, and so, essentially, you're not really in a situation of complete control. You're setting up a negotiation. And how you go about that, I think, is really critical to um, 
what the outcomes are. What fascinates me about um, synthetic biology and the idea that we can engineer microbes is that is there is a kind of an intention for control and driving outcomes when I think there's actually possibly more of a diplomatic um, uh, uh, environment that's needed um, uh, because of the different ways that microbes themselves read and respond to their environment. And I think synthetic biology is helping us learn some of the communications tools that we need in order, in order to have what actually in um, critical theories um, are called a parliament of things. So a parliament of things is an idea that's been developed by people like uh, Isabel Stengers and Bruno Latour, which says that um, in, a, in a kind of a natural environment, um, uh, agents negotiate stuff on their own terms. Um, and microbes are really good at not just dealing with their own species. They've got, you know, Bonnie Bassler says, that there are uh, kind of different ways that microbes have conversations. And they not only just talk to their mates, they can talk to, uh, you know, not even just different races or cultures, but they can see, talk to other species. And so that degree of communication through persuasion and intervention and this kind of negotiated marketplace of, of uh, transactions, I think is really, really interesting. Um, because it's no longer about command and control and what degrees of control we can inflict upon microbes, but how can we persuade them um, to do the kinds of stuff that we think are fun? Um, and, and for me, kind of entering then into a design environment, um, you know, it kind of, uh, it asks different voices to the table when we're thinking about some of these shared challenges that we have, and maybe different perspectives and levels at which we may engage. So that, that's essentially the, the, the fundamental issues. When you've got living things, um, you're no longer boss. And Ricard, um, you have mentioned this nuance of, of the importance of, you know, taking something that is already there and, and using it. But uh, at the same time, I mean, we, the, the vast majority of the microbial world is unknown to us, okay? So I was wondering whether the strategy may be another one, which may be scouting for microbes that do the things you want. We can keep the, the message from community ecology, having in mind the network of species, so have the ecology at work. Um, and at the same time, taking something that is in the system, and the reason of that is that as I was saying, biodiversity protects the system from, from invaders. Once we were able to identify the real advantages of doing some particular interventions, we might actually use uh, all the resources that and big databases that are there to actually identify potential candidates that can make more or less adjust to what we want. Because we also know that ecosystems has, have some degree of redundancy and, and capacity for adapting with new strains that come uh, without being invaders. So yeah, it's, the door is open for all that kind of technology. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so one last question is uh, precisely dealing, dealing with the challenges, okay? So we, this has come up in the conversation at many points that of course the idea of, you know, take an organism, modify it, release it, etc. that immediately sounds like, hey, hey, stop, what, what are you doing, okay? So Ricardo has already mentioned something about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, could you, Talk about under which condition this can be done basically safely and it's not a problem. Yeah, well, there's a kind of historical answer to your question as well. So it's really um, paradoxical that uh, the traditional concern of big sectors of the public 
is uh, what happens when you um, put a new micro in the, ma in, in, the, in the environment, it will destroy the community, it will propagate like crazy, it will spread this and that. Well, for us, uh, interested in bioremediation and uh, that would like to put things into environment for degradation of this or that, the challenge is just the opposite, namely how to put something to environment that survives and works. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, what happens with bacteria is a bit what happens with domesticated animals. You bring them to the laboratory, they get used to the good life of the laboratory, and, and then once you put them back into the environment, they die, and they, they disappear very quickly. There's one interesting thing, you know, um, you know that there have been many, many surveys of um, um, metagenomic uh, DNA all over the world, um, you know, all these um, expeditions to collect samples from all types of places, and you have thousands and thousands of genomes here and there and there. To the best of my knowledge, not a single hint of recombinant DNA has been found in these databases. Um, and I think that there is an ethics and a certain kind of view of what we're engaged in that really, we, we really need to change the language and we need to change the conversation um, because we're so happy with our war metaphors and, and kind of creating these conflicts rather than setting up situations where there's a kind of diplomacy at work, a kind of, um, uh, let's say, a benevolent surveillance, <laughs> a, 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 a being aware of and taking responsibility for um, and thinking through the consequences of our actions. We've become very comfortable not doing that during modernity. With machine, you can press a button and you expect all the problems to go away. That's been our, that's been our expectation. Um, when we're in a living world, we can't do that. We have to stay engaged. And so that's why I think it's really important that the conversations around this issue actually start to change and that the fact that we're hacking genes is actually possibly a sign of our primitive understanding of um, uh, you know, who microbes are and we need to get them to know them a lot better. Yeah, I, I would like to uh, make a, a final point that I think that helps in a way to put in the right context um, the, the proposed idea of terraforming with other alternatives. And I use that because I think that usually makes clear why uh, the questions and the way we pose the questions are wrong. Once you explain this idea that uh, I want to use you know, synthetic biology to create an organism, the liver, everybody gets concerned. But then, um, if you explain what uh, was done in China, for example, uh, more than 50 years, when they had this big travel in an area which was semi-arid and then arid, and then sand started to cover the, rail the railroads, they, they, they decided to do something about it. And what they did, this is Chinese scale, was to, <laughs> to do the following. Now, but this is an amazing stuff. Um, they, used to, they used to do well, we make a, do a big intervention. So we'll bring uh, thousands of tons of haystack and, and dried grass from somewhere to nearby the, the railroad. So they actually put all there. You have to see the pictures because it's kind of a, uh, I think it was a half a kilometer by nine kilometers uh, square kind of shape, kind of chessboard. Um, and they kept making interventions like them bringing shrubs and then, you know. So who is with me? Um, you, you're saying you put a one gene in one species that was there and that could be a problem. But what about the thousands of species exotic that you're bringing from somewhere else to this particular place, right? Because this is surrounded by real ecosystems. So we need to put the, the questions in the right context because that, it can, it, there's no sense to say that one intervention is it's okay, it's nothing else going to happen, and the other is necessarily going to create uh, 
big damage. Yeah. There's been a lot of effort precisely with this uh, motto of what uh, are the unintended consequences of design principles and, and uh, you know, designing genetic uh, kill uh, circuits for, you know, you, you have a bacterium, it does some function, and then to prevent that something is going to happen, you kill it. Um, and the reason of that, uh, in, to some extent, is we still are using the metaphor of invaders as the metaphor for modified organisms. One part of the work we have done is showing that you can actually uh, build what we call ecological firewalls. If you design your microorganisms in such a way that, for example, create not a simple change, but uh, a feedback loop, for example, a kind of symbiotic loop there, you can actually stabilize easily in a very robust way something, and you're not going to spread. It's the ecology what acts as a firewall. But unless you bring the, the knowledge of ecology into the domain of synthetic biology, uh, there's a lot of really relevant concepts that are still missing there that we can connect. Great. So unfortunately, we have run out of time. I plan to draw conclusions, but uh, I prefer to have the real expert uh, talk uh, instead. I just wanted to make this last remark that really um, this approach uh, brings in a major change in uh, how we think about things. And, uh, and, and so it is clear that there is an opportunity there and an opportunity that we need to take uh, seriously given the size of the challenges we are facing at the moment. So thanks a lot, Victor. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, uh, Ricardo. And thanks to everybody here. Good night. The podcast miniseries Made by Microbes is hosted by SynBio4Flav, a research consortium that has received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program under grant agreement number 814650.